Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Ignacio Martin Loeches, and I am a professor of intensive care medicine in Trinity College in Dublin and consultant in ICU uh, in St. James's Hospital in Dublin. So this is uh, another episode of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine talk powered by ICM Journal. Uh, we are going to have the participation of two uh, authors of the recent paper association between sepsis survivorship and long-term cardiovascular outcomes in adults, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So I have the uh, pleasure to count on the first author, Leah Kosiakowski, and the senior author, uh, Patrick Lawler. So uh, they are both uh, coming from, from Canada. Uh, Leah is coming from the Peter Moon Cardiac Center in Toronto, Canada, under the Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, uh, Canada. And Professor Patrick Lawler uh, is also uh, joining from, from Toronto, uh, from the Interdepartmental inter uh, Division of Critical Care Medicine, also in Canada. So uh, welcome uh, to you and thank you very much for being here. Thanks very much for the chance to join you. This is great. Yeah, thank you for having us. So it's great. So I think that um, just to inform to the listeners that we are going to have a, a 15 minutes um, approximately um, time for, for this webinar. So we are going to, or podcast, uh, we are going to discuss about, mainly about the paper. Uh, and I think that um, Canada has a, a great tradition uh, in in trying to expand the knowledge in in ICU patients uh, beyond the ICU, so trying to look at uh, long term outcomes, uh, there are very good work uh, has been published over the last years by many of you guys, and I think that uh, this is uh, an excellent paper that is going to that is going to, to give us uh, some some light, uh, shedding some light about uh, this particular issue. So would you like, if you don't mind, to try to summarize uh, briefly, you know, the, the paper itself, please? I would like to do the honors. Sure thing. Um, so the purpose of our paper was to examine the long-term cardiovascular outcomes after an episode of sepsis. And this was of particular interest to us because there's many mechanisms by which, you know, sepsis may lead to adverse cardiovascular events, whether that's by accelerating atherosclerosis or causing direct myocardial injury. And we also know that as the number of sepsis survivors has increased over the last few years, we become more and more interested in identifying uh, the air increased morbidity and mortality down the line. So what we did is we conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of all papers assessing the short and long-term incidence and risk of cardiovascular disease after sepsis. Our most important primary outcomes were myocardial infarction, heart failure, and stroke. And we also looked at composite cardiovascular events. Um, and the, we were hoping to see uh, the incidence and risk of each of these outcomes at the longest possible follow-up afterwards. Uh, and when we assessed the results of our meta-analysis, uh, which stretched for at least five years after the index episode of sepsis, when we collected all the 27 papers that were included, 
um, we found that there was an instance of about one in 10 of any cardiovascular event um, in about at least five years after sepsis. And we also found that separately, there was an increased risk of myocardial infarction, heart failure, and stroke, as well as the composite risk of cardiovascular events. That was an overall summary of what we found in the paper. Thank you very much. Uh, great summary. Uh, Patrick, would you like to add anything uh, to this or? Yeah, thanks, Nasir. That's terrific and, and phenomenal summary. I agree. You know, one of the key things that differentiated the approach taken here, as you say, was to focus less on the acute and hospital events and focus more on the longitudinal kind of late cardiovascular events. So we only looked at events that occurred at least 30 days after discharge and then, as Leah said, longitudinally throughout beyond five years, depending on the study. Um, and really, there are a lot of reasons to think that this might be biologically a, a real signal in the sense that there are a lot of pathways that become dysregulated, of course, after sepsis and then persist um, potentially for a long time after that. Those may relate to inflammation, thrombosis, oxidative stress. A lot of those factors and pathways are risk um, contributors to cardiovascular disease. Um, and as I said, there's some animal studies that suggest that sepsis induces an acceleration in atherosclerosis, um, as well as biomarker studies that suggest that some of those perturbations persist in the period of time, in the months, even up to a year or so after sepsis. So um, but from our perspective, there was a reasonable biologic rationale to suspect this. And there were a lot of studies that had looked at this um, of sort of variable quality. Our sense was, though, it was an opportunity to synthesize a broad literature and try to come up with some coherent signals. Thank you very much, uh, Patrick and Leah. So I would like to ask you something um, that is uh, striking to me when we are looking about uh, cardiovascular events, like all of us, uh, when we are talking about these long-term issues, we look at the most common cause of sepsis. And I would say that this is respiratory sepsis, as we know, and probably one of the first ones uh, to start that link with cardiovascular events, not only long-term events, but also acute events when the patient is being admitted in the hospital and not necessarily in the ICU where the respiratory physicians. Um, do you think that this is just a respiratory uh, sepsis issue or do you think that this is beyond the respiratory sepsis issue? What is your impression about it? That's a, that's a great question. And um, out of the articles that we selected that were included for this study, um, there were several that only looked at respiratory sepsis, um, but the vast majority of them looked at sepsis as a whole um, without discriminating the origin. And we found pretty, we didn't do a stratified analysis based on respiratory versus non-respiratory sepsis, um, but we did find that given all of the studies, which largely were looking at sepsis as a whole, they did still show this persistently elevated risk. I think it is a great question down the line. Uh, I think having a well-designed uh, study looking at the specific etiology of sepsis um, and the subsequent risk and seeing if there's any differential risk depending on that would be a really interesting thing to do. Uh, based on our survey of evidence, all we can really say is that, yes, we did see the signal with the primary respiratory sepsis, but that we couldn't really distinguish it from other forms. Definitely, this is something that, you know, to me has been very interesting, you know, especially with these well-seen myocardial scarring uh, in patients that they have had a severe community acquired pneumonia. So far, many of these findings have been shown in animal models, uh, but they are still, um, due to the technical difficulties, of course, uh, to find this in, in human beings. But the question is, um, 
more than to know or not to know is how what we should do based on the on the paper message should we follow them up should we follow them up in a year two years what is your opinion based on these findings please you know, I think one of the areas that we really identified in this meta-analysis is that we need to have a better sense of which patient populations are at highest risk of these complications after sepsis. Because one of the things we found is that there is really big heterogeneity in, a in sort of the selection for patients with prevalent cardiovascular disease and adjustment for that. So I think the first takeaway from this paper is we definitely need more evidence in who is at higher risk for cardiovascular complications after sepsis. And once we have that information, we definitely think that this can be taken forward and, and sort of a new avenue for the long-term care of sepsis survivors. Perhaps there should be a some sort of post-sepsis cardiovascular clinic to establish what are the prevalent risk factors uh, and establish whether there are any areas that can be improved on in cardiovascular prevention. But I definitely think we there needs to be more evidence on who is at highest risk so that we can best address them. So thank you very much for this. And I would like to ask you, uh, Patrick, uh, one question about who would be the person to follow these um, patients, because we have seen that many of these patients, they have not only cardiovascular uh, issues, but also uh, post-traumatic disorders, depression. So they might have a combination of different things. And in many countries, uh, the intensivists are starting to do these follow-up clinics. Uh, do you think that this is um, this is the way that we should do uh, based on your uh, huge experience that you have in Canada? Or is more multidisciplinary? What is your opinion about this particular issue? Thanks, Ignacio. It's a spectacular question. Um, you know, I think to, to conceptualize the answer, it, it would sort of be helpful maybe for us to, for me at least, to think about the kinds of risk pathways. And some of them might be biologic, as we mentioned. Some of them might be best practices. And so some of the work that Leah and her colleague, um, Claudia Frankfurt, are doing with our group is to look at medication deprescription during hospitalization for sepsis. And it may be that there are a number of patients on cardioprotective medications these are withdrawn and then they fare worse in the period of time afterwards as a result of that. So um, in some cases, it may be a question of pharmacy and some question that maybe some cases, it may be a question of sort of targeting new biologic pathways. Um, it's quite likely from my perspective that many of the traditional cardiovascular risk markers may not play out very well here. Uh, we've seen that in diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, where Framingham heart score, for example, predicts cardiovascular risk, but not as well as it does in people without an underlying inflammatory disease that's driving that risk. So um, I think there's an opportunity for us to better maybe hone what the mediators are of that risk and then from there to try to fill it in. But in the short term, um, I do agree that a multidisciplinary clinic, maybe which included a cardiovascular physician, um, otherwise at the very least a general internist, I think would be worth considering. Um, I think there's really interesting data looking at, um, for example, RAS modulators, ACE inhibitors, and things like that after um, in sort of the prevention of sepsis and the prevention of hospitalization for pneumonia, and also obviously in the prevention of cardiovascular events. Um, there's compelling data perhaps for statins too, and there may be new treatment avenues as well with SGLT2 inhibitors and other things that 
fix some of the residual um, you know, perturbations and dysregulated host response that persist in the period of time after. I, I think to, to Leia's point too, that there's really a lot of work to be done on refining which patients are those to target. And because we know from, I think, an increasing body of, for example, leukocyte transcriptomic work in sepsis that there are a large proportion of patients that may have more prominent features of immunosuppression, um, HLA downregulation, T-cell exhaustion, endotoxin tolerance. And it may be that those patients have a different risk pathway and trajectory than some of the more classic um, sort of very, very inflammatory patients as well. Um, so thinking about how to do that, whether that's with um, biomarker stratification in hospital, whether that's with biomarker stratification after hospitalization, a general cardiology referral or general internal medicine referral to optimize risk prevention, all of those may in combination help to reduce some of that risk. But it's a phenomenal question. It's definitely um, the next frontier, I guess. Okay, so um, the last question uh, actually for the two of you, I think that um, I am very, uh, I'm very doubtful about uh, how is just the disease or also we are having other additional uh, issues when we are looking about long-term outcomes, especially mm -hmm. cardiovascular events and is the social circumstances around uh, the patients. So both of you are coming and working from from a cardiac uh, institute, uh, the Hair Research uh, Ted Rogers Center in, in Canada and Peter Moon Cardiac Center as well in, in Canada. So I think that you have a broad understanding about these social circumstances in the development of cardiovascular events as a whole and in uh, patients with sepsis in particular. Do you think that social circumstances play a role as well, or this just a biological phenomena that is nothing to do with that? You know, I think that's a really, really great point. And I absolutely think that social circumstances could play a role in this. And that is one of the areas that's very difficult to adjust for when you're doing studies like this and will often be playing in the background. And it seems very, very plausible that patients after suffering an episode of sepsis and perhaps suffering all the disability and morbidity associated with surviving severe illness may very well you know, not be able to optimize their cardiac prevention, not be able to have the supports in place necessary to get the prevention and the treatment that they need. So I absolutely think that this could be a contributing factor. And I think it's a really important, it's also a very important area for us to optimize as physicians, as well as all the different medical aspects that need to be improved after severe illness, all of the social aspects as well, and improving both social supports and psychological health. I agree as well. And yeah, would you like to add anything else, Patrick? Sure. Thanks, Dr. Yeah, no, I, I very much agree as well. And I think I'd also sort of say it's something that, you know, in cardiology, we think of a lot where there is an, inter an interaction between biologic risk factors and social determinants of health. And um, I think that interaction is something that we think about. There's, you know, as you touched on, there's certainly affective disorders and other things that may play into risk as well in the period of time after sepsis. And um, I also think, you know, from our perspective, one from a cardiology, I should say, perspective, one of the things that's neat about this concept is that we've conventionally thought of things like the Framingham risk factors um, and the various kind of static markers of risk that sort of exist almost in isolation, although you can aggregate them into scores to predict risk. Um, what this does is this paradigm kind of says it's not just about those risk factors, it's about their interactions with major life events, with major medical conditions, and those disease-disease interactions or disease-risk factor interactions, as you say, disease sort of psychosocial interactions, all of those I think play out to shape the trajectory of illness 
And uh, only considering one in isolation, I agree with you, will not paint the whole picture. So thank you very much. So I think that we are uh, coming to um, the end. Uh, I would like to invite uh, listeners to reach out if they have any questions through the through the website or also to the uh, ICM office. Uh, this is just an example of a terrific paper that is not only keeping the four walls of the ICU, so much beyond, so trying to look at what is happening after and how a multidisciplinary approach uh, is going to help these patients. So it's been a huge pleasure uh, to have these uh, fantastic speakers and, and great authors in this paper. And I would like to congratulate them again and thank you for your trust in publishing in intensive care medicine. Thank you very much, Ignacio. It's been a real privilege. Yeah, thank you very much.